This evening I'd like to continue the discussion about the law of karma. Investigate and explore some of the implications and ramifications. This law of karma is one of the most important laws which govern our lives. Because the unfolding of our lives, the unfolding of experience, does not happen randomly. It does not happen chaotically. It's happening according to a very lawful pattern. And if we can understand this law and live in harmony with it, it's very much conducive to our happiness. And if we don't understand how it works, and we live out of harmony with it, unknowingly and out of ignorance, we often sow the seeds of our own suffering, our unhappiness. The basic principle underlying this law of karma is that the motive behind an action has the power to bring about certain results. That inherent, in a moment of volition, contained in that moment of volition or motivation, is the potential energy to create a result or to create an effect. The Buddha talked of volition or motive as being karma. It's not the act itself, but the volition or motive behind it. As an example of this, also as a continuation of the story that Deepama spoke of early in the week of the blind monk who became an arhant, the story continues a little bit after his enlightenment. And he would be continuing his practicing of sitting and walking Because he was blind at that time, he unknowingly was stepping on and killing ants as he was doing the walking meditation. So some other monks saw that he was killing these ants and they could not reconcile how somebody who was an arhant, somebody who was totally enlightened or free, could also be committing an unwholesome or unskillful action. It was in that context that the Buddha explained that the karma of an act has to do with the volition because there was no motive in that monk's mind. There was no intention to kill. So there was no unwholesome karma being created. When we understand this aspect of karma, the implication of it is that it's necessary for us to develop a very high degree of sensitivity about our own motivations, about our motives. And as you've observed over these past weeks, sometimes it's not so clear what the motive is. The mind is very tricky. 
and often confused or rationalizing. So in our practice and in our lives, we want to examine and cultivate a high degree of honesty and depth of perception with regard to our own motives, because that's where the seed of karma is. Can we look very carefully and honestly at our actions and see what's the volition behind it? Is it greed? Is it anger? Is it delusion? Is it love? Is it compassion? Is it wisdom? So it requires a great honesty and a great sensitivity, great refinement of perception. We can understand this law of karma on two different levels. We can understand it on the level of conventional reality. That is, the conventional reality of beings, of separate individual beings, and of rebirth through different planes. We can also understand how the law of karma works on the more ultimate level, that is, the arising and vanishing of mind moments. Because this process of arising and vanishing, moment after moment, is also happening lawfully. There is a sequence or a progression which happens in the arising and passing away momentarily that also falls within the domain of karma. So it works on both these levels, on the moment-to-moment level and also on the conventional level of us as separate individual beings taking birth and dying and rebirth. We talked about how the quality of mind in each moment conditions that present moment's reality. So depending on the quality of mind, whether it's filled with love or understanding or clarity or mindfulness or anger or delusion or dullness, depending on the particular factors arising in each moment, depending on that, our present world experience is conditioned. Not only does it condition our present experience, but each moment also conditions the development or cultivation of certain patterns and habits of mind. Every moment we practice mindfulness, that factor gets stronger, and so it conditions the arising of mindfulness in the next moment, perhaps with a few moments lapse. If there's a moment of greed or anger, that also conditions the arising of that, the strengthening of that. So we can begin to see how really what we call personality, personality is the development and cultivation of certain factors of mind over a period of time. Now if we are continually greedy, or continually angry, or continually loving, continually compassionate, 
Over a period of time, these qualities of mind become very strong, become well-established. And so we say of a person, they're a greedy person or a loving person. We begin to describe their personality in these terms. And really what it is, is the strengthening of particular factors of mind. If we extrapolate this even further, it's from particular factors arising in a moment to habit patterns or personality patterns of the mind where they get quite well established, the next extrapolation of that is the emergence of what in the Buddhist teaching are the six realms of existence. Because these six realms of existence come into being because of very strong forces in the mind. Certain energies in the mind become so strong and so powerful that the karma is created for rebirth in these realms. Again, in the, in the teachings of the Buddha, he describes six realms, six different levels or planes of existence, all reflecting particular mind states. So the hell realms, which are described, are the result of strong, intense hatred in the mind. If we practice, if we cultivate hatred, as often is, in, is the case in the world, the mind gets so strong in this, in this intense energy of burning and violence. So not only does it become a hell realm here on this earth, but it also creates the karma of rebirth in that plane of existence. The result of strong hatred. There's another realm which is called the hungry ghost realm. And that's the fruit, that's the karmic fruit of intense, very intense greed and desire. When that's the overwhelming factor and force in the mind, not only are we hungry ghosts as human beings, that is intense, compulsive greed, clinging, wanting, creates this realm of existence as a karmic result. And there are many different descriptions of these beings. It's, it's a realm of great suffering. But one of the images or descriptions of beings in this realm which typifies the mind state, so it's a good example of what is being cultivated, describes these beings who have huge bodies, very large, huge bodies, and just pinhole mouths. And so no matter how much they take in, there's never the feeling of being satisfied. And then we see it's a very, it's a very apropos or appropriate description of that kind of mind state. When greed is so strong, it really reflects this endless wanting that's never satisfied. And it's a state of great suffering. There's a realm of 
what are called asuras or, or demon spirits in which fear and jealousy are the predominant factors. When they have become so strong in the mind that one is living in that realm, whether living as a human being in that realm or takes birth in that realm, it's these factors which are strong, fear and jealousy and envy. In the animal realm, which is characterized by a certain level of dullness of consciousness. And there's the human realm, which is the first of the uh, happy realms of existence, even though you may sometimes wonder, (laughs) compared to the first four, it's quite happy, in which the suffering is less. In In the other realms, the suffering is most intense. In the human realm, the happiness begins to outweigh the suffering. And also there's a karmic, this human realm is the karmic result. We take birth here not by accident. There are karmic causes behind it. And it has to do with the factors in the mind of generosity, of non-greed, and the factors of morality, of non-harming, non-hatred. When these factors are cultivated and strengthened, the karmic result is that we live as human beings. We, we have a certain quality of humanity. And then there are the higher realms, the celestial realms, there's the celestial realms of sense pleasure, which also is, is conditioned by generosity and by non-harming. And then the Brahma realms, the highest realms, the karmic, the karmic result of very highly developed concentration. When we develop the path of concentration to the point of absorption or jhana, and these beings take rebirth in these Brahma realms. This is samsara. We journey through these six realms of existence. And we do it within one hour, and we do it within a day, and we do it from lifetime to lifetime. At whatever time span we look, we can see these forces, or these energies in the mind. Either the unwholesome ones of hatred, or greed, or fear, or jealousy, or dullness, are the wholesome ones of generosity, of morality, of concentration, of wisdom. And it's as if our going through these realms, whether within you know, an hour or a day or a lifetime or many lifetimes, it's like the unfolding of a dream. It's, it's as if life is being dreamed according to this law of karma. So if we can understand it, if we pay attention and see how the unfolding takes place, then it's possible to create in ourselves a sense of responsibility and a sense of creativity 
for the kind of realm, the kind of world we inhabit, we live in. We begin to see that the only true possessions that we have are our own actions. Because as we go through this round of samsara, of birth and death, within a lifetime and from lifetime to lifetime, the only thing that's really carried are the actions that we've done and the results of those actions. And these follow us. Everything else is we part from, whether it's people or possessions or situations. Nothing really belongs to us except our own actions and the fruits of those actions. It's in that way that it's said that we are the heirs or the inheritors of our own past deeds. Someone once came to the Buddha in this light and asked the Buddha why there were differences in people. Why some people lived to old age and some people died young, why some were beautiful, some ugly, some rich, some poor, some wise, some dull. The Buddha gave a discourse in which he outlined very specifically the karmic causes behind each of those conditions. That all of the conditions that we find ourselves in are not happening accidentally. They're happening because of certain past actions. And he explained how the karmic cause of long life is non-killing. When we don't take the life of other beings, the karmic fruit of that is that we enjoy long life ourselves. And now, when we habitually kill, the karmic fruit is to die young, to die at an early age. Why are some people in good health and some people in poor health? It's explained that when we consistently and repeatedly harm other beings, the karmic fruit of that is ill health. We constantly suffer from that. When we protect other beings, non-harming, so we enjoy good health. Why are some people beautiful and some people not? has to do with the karmic fruit of our speech. When we practice over and over again wrathful, angry, abusive speech, the karmic fruit of that is an ugly appearance. We can see it. We can actually see it being formed if if we can observe people as they're very angry or very abusive. Everything becomes very ugly. The energy is ugly. And beauty is the karmic result of gentle speech, of harmonious speech. Things are not happening chaotically. They're happening according to a lawful unfolding. When we practice generosity, and it becomes strong in the mind, when over and over again we cultivate that quality, the karmic fruit is abundance, is wealth. And if we practice or cultivate stinginess or miserliness, 
the karmic fruit is poverty. Why if some people, some people intelligent and some people dull and stupid? It's the karmic fruit of the level of inquiry and investigation in the mind. If we never inquire and never look, never try to understand what's happening, the mind becomes very dull. And that, over time, develops into a dull consciousness. As we practice investigation and inquiry, that's the karmic fruit, that's the karmic cause of intelligence and wisdom. When we understand karma unfolding in this way, it puts us into a different relationship to our experience. When we see that we are the inheritors, we are the heirs of our own past action, so then as we go through different experiences in our lives, we can shift our relationship from one of resentment or anger or frustration to one of acceptance. And it's very important to distinguish here, and this is a place where often people misunderstand, that acceptance does not mean resignation. It doesn't mean that one is simply resigned to current experience and not do anything about it. Rather, it means that we take responsibility for our current situation, accept it, rather than be resentful or resisting, and then act in the appropriate way, respond in the appropriate way. If change is called for, we act to change or to develop. <laughs> so understanding karma, does not, when we understand it correctly, does not lead to resignation. It leads to a balance of mind and a taking of responsibility. In the teachings of the Buddha, in the different suttas and discourses, over and over again it is emphasized that a basic aspect of wrong view in people's minds is the view that actions do not have results. And so there's a very strong emphasis on this understanding that what we do brings about certain results in our lives. Our actions are not happening in a vacuum. And when we understand that, then there's a possibility of really undertaking a deep sense of commitment and responsibility for ourselves and for our actions. Buddha talked of the law of karma and understanding it as being the light of the world. Because when we understand it, it gives us the context for cultivating those actions which are skillful and which bring happiness. rather than 
committing those actions which are harmful and bring disharmony and unhappiness. And it all comes back to ourselves. Nobody, as was said early in the week, nobody can take somebody else's karma. We all have to take care with our actions and be sensitive to the motives behind them. There are a few aspects of this taking responsibility which very much are connected with the development of mindfulness. Mindfulness is really the key in looking at our actions, looking at our motivation. Some of these aspects, one of them is called clear comprehension. And clear comprehension means that, it's rather self-explanatory, we clearly comprehend, we clearly understand what it is that we're doing. We're present for what we're doing, we know what we're doing, we're not lost in some fantasy, we're not lost in some daydream, we're not unconscious. That is the bottom line of really beginning to work with our own karmic actions, our own volitions. If we're not aware If the hand is in the refrigerator before we know how it got there, there's not much chance to look at the motive behind that. It's already in. There's already food in the mouth. Clear comprehension is absolutely necessary for us then to begin to examine or investigate, okay, what is the volition behind this? Is it skillful? Is it unskillful? So following upon clear comprehension is something which is called suitability of purpose. Is the purpose of the action suitable? Is it skillful? Is it wholesome? Is it something we want to do? If we're not aware, if we're not mindful, we can never consider whether it's suitable or not. So first is clear comprehension, then suitability of purpose. And then a factor of mind which, again, is emphasized so often in the teachings as being the conditioning cause cause of wholesome mind states, which is called wise attention or wise reflection. When we become aware of an action that's about to happen, when we become aware of the motive, It's to pay very wise attention in that moment to that motivation, to that action. Where is it leading? What is it cultivating? Is it leading to a place that we want to go to? Is it leading to the hungry ghost realm? Do I want to go there? (laughs) Is it leading to the human realm? That would be a nice place. We begin to see, we begin to reflect in the moment in this way because so often we get carried by the momentum of past habit. The example given is is that of a bucket uh, sitting under a tap of water and just being filled drop by drop. Now when you look at any one drop, it does not seem very significant. Don't give it very much attention. 
But the bucket is sitting there. Drop, 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 drop. Pretty soon the bucket is filled. Our mind is like that bucket. And every moment, every moment of volition, of motive, is filling the mind, is conditioning the mind. Every moment of anger, every moment of love, every moment of generosity, every moment of hatred, each one is conditioning the mind, strengthening the mind in that particular way. And so we really have to look and see, in a particular action, what are we filling the mind with? Because it is being filled, it's not, it's not um, insignificant. Because everything that happens makes it easier for that thing to happen again. Every time a mind state arises, it becomes that much easier for it to arise in the future. So we have to be sensitive. We have to be watchful and cultivate this wise attention with these different states of mind that are arising. Reflecting on the law of karma can become a very strong motivation to practice. One of the classic stories of how this reflection served as an intense motive to practice is that of the great Tibetan yogi Milarepa. There's a wonderful book, the, the biography of Milarepa, which details his life. As a young child, underwent tremendous suffering. His parents died and he had a wicked old aunt and uncle who stole everything from him and impoverished him. And a lot of suffering. And he got very angry, very resentful. So as he grew up, he went off and learned all kinds of black magic powers of mind. Came back and wrought dis- destruction on his aunt and uncle in the neighborhood. And through some past parame, he started reflecting on this law of karma and realized that he better get it together. <laughs> he had done all this with that intense power of mind and he had used it in a very destructive way. And so he sought out a teacher and practiced and, and always in his mind you know, was this intense motivation to come to a place of freedom, of understanding. And through tremendously inspiring and rigorous journey of practice, reached high states of enlightenment and liberation. And his teaching is often found in what's called the 100,000 Songs of Milarepa. It was songs of Dharma, songs of freedom. But it was that reflection on the inexorable quality of the law of karma that motivated him to really come to a place of freedom. One time the Dalai Lama was giving a talk someplace in this area and he said something very interesting, particularly interesting you know, from a Buddhist point of view. He was talking about karma and emptiness. You know, and the Buddhist idea of emptiness of self, the insubstantiality of phenomenon. Of course, from a, from a Buddhist point of view, that is just 
the essence of the understanding, the selfless, empty quality, non-ownership of experience. What the Dalai Lama said was that you know, for people who are undergoing their practice, if they had a choice between reflecting on the law of karma and reflecting on emptiness, it would be more helpful to reflect on karma. And it was a very, it was actually very pointed advice. Because it's very possible, the kind of occupational hazard of people in practice is to use an intellectual understanding of emptiness, or even the beginning of an experiential one, but not a fully developed one, as a justification or a rationale for doing what we want to do. Well, it's all empty, so it doesn't really matter. And that is very much missing the point. And it's for that reason the Dalai Lama suggested better to reflect on the law of karma, because that really will imbue a sense of responsibility for what one is doing. Remembering that even though it's empty, actions bring results. What we do in every moment brings about certain effects. We have to see that, we have to understand that. When we begin to appreciate this law of karma, it also becomes a conditioning cause for great compassion to arise. Because when we see that people are doing things that are unskillful, that are harmful, that are hurtful, we can appreciate that that unskillful action, those harmful actions, are coming out of ignorance. People are doing those things, we ourselves are doing them, because we don't understand. We do things which are going to bring back pain to us, bring back suffering to us, when there's ignorance in the mind. And so when we see other people doing things unskillfully, we can see that they're planting the seeds for themselves of future pain and future suffering. What is the response to that when we understand it in that way? It's not so much anger or aggression towards them for doing harmful actions. Rather, it's compassion for the ignorance which is fueling them. And so our response then does not so much become an angry reaction to their action, but rather a response that tries to help eradicate the ignorance, to uproot the ignorance. And that comes from a very different place in us. We respond from compassion for the ignorance rather than anger at the action. As a way of illustrating some of the aspects of how this law of karma works, I'd like to tell a few of the um, few Buddhist karma stories. Because they all have a particular, 
particular point. One aspect of understanding this law is that each mind moment brings about its own result. And so if in a particular mind moment the mind is wholesome, it brings about a wholesome result. If it's unwholesome, it brings about an unwholesome result. So there's this story of this man in the Buddhist time who saw you know, this monk walking by and had a thought to offer some food. Like very generous. And this monk was an enlightened, fully enlightened being, and so the act became very powerful because of that pure that level of purity. So this, this man offered food, but immediately afterward regretted it. He said, the waste of food, why did I do that? You know, they don't deserve it, they don't work or anything. Shouldn't have given the food. Okay, so what happened? This little karma story. For seven lifetimes in a row, it said, he was reborn as a millionaire, as the fruit of that moment of generosity. But the fruit of the regret was that even as a millionaire, he was a miser, he lived miserly, and so could not enjoy it, which was the fruit of the mind moments of regret. When we understand this aspect of karma, of how each moment brings its own specific result, one can understand the uh, suggestion that one surround, that one surround one's wholesome actions with wholesome thought, right? with thought that appreciates right, the act that's been done, the wholesomeness, the purity of it. Karma at the moment of death, very powerful moment, because death consciousness conditions rebirth consciousness. In this sequence of mind moments arising and passing away, which is happening throughout our life, each moment conditions the arising of the next moment, conditions the arising of the next. Death consciousness, the quality of the mind of death, conditions the arising of rebirth consciousness. So how does the law of karma work at the time of death? There are four kinds of karma which are operative or can be operative in that moment. One of them, the one that takes precedence, is called heavy karma or weighty karma. And that is actions which are so powerful karmically that regardless of what else has happened in one's life, they are going to to uh, be the predominant force at the time of death, uh, conditioning rebirth. And there's both wholesome and unwholesome weighty karma. The unwholesome weighty karma, just so you know not to do it, you don't want to kill your mother or father, and you don't want to wound the Buddha, and you don't want to kill an enlightened being, and you don't want to cause a schism right, in, in the order of enlightened beings, in the order of monks and nuns. Bad. <laughs> don't do it. Those actions are weighty karma, and if one has done them, they necessarily will bring result at the time of death 
in rebirth. The weighty, wholesome karma, and this you should do, <laughs> is developing the mind in, in deep concentration to the level of jhana or absorption, because if that has been developed and is sustained until the time of death, takes precedence in terms of the karma and one is reborn in the Brahma worlds. Or the weighty karma of reaching any of the stages of enlightenment. That closes off the possibility of rebirth in the lower realms. That's the first kind of karma that can operate at that moment, weighty, wholesome and unwholesome. If there's no weighty karma, then there's something which is called proximate karma, which means just the, the action or the state of mind which happens to be there just in the time before dying. Which is why it's recommended that if one has the occasion you know, to be with dying people, it's helpful always to remind them or surround them with thoughts of wholesome actions, of past good deeds, of pleasant mind states. So that that becomes the dying moment's energy, right? the reflection on a past good deed, or some reflection on, on past purity, past kindness, past love, or feeling that in the present. There's a story about that. There was a thief who No, I think I'll save that story. <laughs> Another story. <laughs> we'll go from a thief to a frog. <laughs> there was a frog. A uh, frog who lived all his life in a little pond. <laughs> and it just so happened that the Buddha was, with the order of monks and nuns and lay people, was by the side of the pond, was giving a discourse. And this frog just happened to be in the pond, and even though it wasn't understanding the words, was listening, listening to the sounds. And just as he was listening to the sounds, somebody accidentally, you know, with his uh, staff, you know, kind of leaned on the frog, crushed it, and the frog died. Because his last mind moment, you know, was just the very pleasing sounds of the Buddha's voice. It said the frog took rebirth in the heaven realms. And then he looked back, as he was reborn as a deva, and he looked back on his past life, which is one of the powers of mind devas have. So, hmm, frog, <laughs> better get to work. <laughs> and so he practiced and got enlightened. <laughs> That's an example of proximate karma at the time of death. <laughs> so it's good to be listening to the Buddha's voice, if one can, or... <laughs> something wholesome. <laughs> if there's no weighty karma and there's no, there's no particularly strong proximate karma, the next kind of karma that operates at the time of death and one which is very frequent, it's the one that in some ways perhaps is most frequent 
constantly arising, is called habitual karma, which means it's the result of those actions which we've done over and over again. You know, and so, you know, if somebody has been involved in a lot of killing, then at the time of death, an image or a sign will come. And it's said that at the time of death, either a certain image or sign related to the past actions, or an image or sign of the realm in which we're going to be reborn. And so there are stories, of, and not only, not only you know, classical classical stories from the Buddhist time, but up to the present day, of people having these images come to the mind just at the time of death. For example, if somebody has done a lot of killing, it might be the weapon you know, that was used. Or if somebody has done a lot of sitting, you, know, you may get a zafu <laughs> come to your mind. <laughs> Some wholesome sign. Habitual karma is very strong. What you do repeatedly, you know, what you do over and over again, those actions build up a very strong energy in the mind. And very often that is the determining energy at the time of death, which conditions rebirth. And the last kind of karma is called random karma. There's nothing weighty and nothing proximate and no particular habitual action than anything that we've done in this life or from a past life can come in that moment. It's important to reflect on the import of this. You know, because on one level we can hear it and it you know, can sound like fanciful stories. But if we reflect that our lives are unfolding according to the Dharma. Dharma means law. That's one of the meanings of the word Dharma. That there is a law, or there are laws governing what's happening. It's not, it's not random, it's not chaotic. So then we can really begin to shape our lives, begin to take care with our actions because of the understanding that our actions have this tremendous force imbued in them, this karmic force. There's another story about, relates to the aspect of karma it has to do with uh, karma or actions finding opportunities to bring results. Now we go to the thief. Mm-hmm. This person had been a thief all his life, created a lot of unwholesome karma. And he was finally caught, and the king you know, was, ordered him to be hung. And so the soldiers were taking him up to the gallows to be hung. And just as that was about to happen, he saw a monk walk by and he remembered that once in his life he had offered some food. And just then, so that was his last thought. His last thought was one of offering the food. Proximate karma. 
So again, he was reborn in the heaven realms, the deva realms. Now when one takes rebirth in there, unwholesome karma cannot reach there. It's beyond the reach of all the unwholesome actions for as long as one is in that realm. And so again, this, this new deva, the celestial being, was very wise. He looked back, he saw exactly what had happened, how he had ended up, because he himself was quite surprised. You know, after having lived this uh, rather um, unskillful life, and there he was in the Devaram. Also, he began to practice quite diligently and became enlightened and so remained out of the reach of this unwholesome karma. It's another story which is, uh, should provide some solace to you <laughs> as you reflect perhaps on um, some unwholesome actions that perhaps you have done. It's a story of somebody who's called Engulimala. In Engulimala, there's a whole long background to the circumstances which led him to become an outlaw. But he was treated unjustly and unfairly and kind of in revenge. He um, left society, went out into the forest, and he made this vow that he was going to collect a garland of a thousand fingers. He was going to kill a thousand people and, and take, you know, as a trophy, a finger from each one, and he was going to wear this garland. And that's what Angulimala means. It means garland of fingers. And he was very fierce. And he was killing all these people and creating all this terrible karma. And he killed 999 people. And then, I believe as the story goes, his mother or father was going to, his mother was going to go and try to, you know, calm him down. <laughs> but he was determined to get this thousand finger, and he was about to, to kill his mother, which, weighty karma, not good. And the Buddha came. His Buddha surveyed, you know, with his eye of wisdom, saw what was happening. So through psychic power, the Buddha appeared in the forest, and he did a little trick. As Angulimala came, came running after the Buddha, the Buddha kept walking very slowly, just lifting, moving, placing. <laughs> <laughs> and as fast as Angulimala ran through the psychic power of the Buddha, he could never catch up. And so he was getting very angry and frustrated. So finally he said, no, stop. And the Buddha turned and he said, I have stopped. It's you who have not stopped. And Angulimala was kind of taken by the fearlessness and the power of this person. And the Buddha went on to explain, it's I who have stopped the fires of greed and hatred and delusion. It's you who have not stopped. And inspired by the Buddha at that, at that time, Angulimala renounced that life, became a monk, and practiced, practiced very hard. It's said that as he went out, you know, to the villages to collect alms food, both because of the you know, people knowing who he was and very resentful, and also just as karmic fruits of all that unwholesome action. Often he was stoned, and pe people threw stones and sticks and beat him. He would often come back 
very bloody and cut. He practiced. He was very, very diligent. He became enlightened. He became an arhat. He became free. And so removed himself, even though he experienced the karmic fruit to a certain extent, did not have to suffer the complete fruition of all those past actions. He took himself out of the reach of that level of karma. And so that also is to clarify perhaps something that was um, perhaps misunderstood in the last talk. It's not that necessarily we have to experience the fruit of all our past actions. Because it's possible to come to a place of mind where they, where they do not bear the complete fruition through our own purification. Just one other, one other little aspect of how karma works. The state of mind that we're in attracts the fruition of like karma. So, for example, if we are cultivating pure states of mind and we're dwelling in pure states of mind, that purity attracts the karmic energy of past wholesome actions. It draws the past wholesome actions to bear fruit at that time. It acts like a magnet. So when we're living in a state of purity out of the illimitable um, storehouse of past karma, when we're living with purity in our minds, it attracts out of that storehouse the, the wholesome karma. And so that begins to bear more and more fruit. And when we're living with unwholesome states of mind or impure states of mind, that also acts as a magnet. And so we draw to ourselves the fruits of unwholesome past action. And it just gets very interesting both to understand at first conceptually and then to really look in our lives to begin to see how all of this is working. We can, we can really look and investigate for ourselves to a certain extent how this karma, this law of karma is unfolding. I have a lot more here. I don't know. A couple more things. <laughs> this one may be of particular interest to you because people sometimes wonder uh, the different ways that practice unfolds because that also is karmically determined. Practice can unfold in one of four ways can unfold very slowly with a lot of pain. (laughs) 
That's the first way. Or it can unfold very slowly, slow development of insight, but not much pain, quite pleasant. Or it can unfold with very quick insight, with a lot of pain, or very quick insight and very pleasant. Okay, most of us fall into one of those. Mostly not the last, but... All of that is karmically determined. The degree of pain that we feel in our practice, whether it's pain or mostly painful and mostly pleasant, has to do with our past accumulations. If we've done a lot of past unwholesome action, so we're going to experience in our practice a lot of painful feeling, a lot of painful sensation. It has nothing to do with how the practice is going. It has to do with the result of our of our past deeds. The speed or the rapidity of the development of insight also has to do with our karmic development because it has to do with the past the past development of wisdom, of inquiry, of investigation. If in the past, in this life and in past lives, we've made that factor very strong, so then as we apply ourselves now, it's very quick, we understand rapidly. If we haven't developed that, you know, if we've um, cultivated dullness of mind in the past, so then the, the development of wisdom and the development of insight will proceed slowly. When you understand it in this way, it kind of mm, creates a space of acceptance in the mind for the way our practice unfolds. It's slow, it's quick, it's painful, it's pleasant. doesn't really matter as long as we keep the process of mindfulness and the process of insight going on. We want to develop wholesome states. Now we want to develop strong investigation now. And so if this time, this three months, it's slow and painful, there's the cultivation of uh, strong investigation, strong purity of mind. And the next few months may be quick and pleasant. <laughs> Perhaps. Just last thing, which really ties almost everything I've spoken about, has to do with understanding the law of karma on this conventional, conventional level of reality. That is, how actions bring about certain results, how we experience those different results, both in this life and rebirth in different planes. All of that has to do with the concept of being and of self of individual. There's also a way of understanding karma moment to moment. And very briefly, perhaps in another talk we'll expand upon it. As I've said, the, the mental factor of feeling, which is a quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality, in every moment of in every moment of experience there's a feeling quality to it. That feeling is a karmic result. We experience something as being pleasant or unpleasant 
as the result of a past action. When we react to these feelings, when we react with greed to the pleasant feeling, or we react with aversion towards an unpleasant feeling, we're creating the karma for future feelings to arise. Past actions bring the result of present feelings. Reactions to these present feelings create the karma of feelings to arise in the future. These feelings arise in the future, the mind, which is a karmic result, the mind reacts to it, right? present, present action, that action creates future feelings. And so we're just caught over and over again in this cycle. Because of feelings, there are reactions. Because of reactions, new feelings. Because of those feelings, reactions. Because of those reactions, new feelings. Over and over again. That's what keeps us bound. That's this wheel of samsara on the mind-moment level. And so to free ourselves from this wheel, we can stop feelings from arising because they are the karmic result of past actions. They are going to be there in every moment. But where we can break the wheel, break the chain, is by not reacting to those feelings. Pleasantness comes, we don't cling, we don't grasp. Unpleasantness comes, we don't condemn, we don't have aversion. And so when these feelings arise in the mind as the result of past actions, we're not creating the karmic seeds of future feeling. And this is how we step out of the wheel of conditioning. We break this wheel. So instead of feelings creating reaction, greed and aversion, when mindfulness is present, feelings condition wisdom. Feelings condition insight. And respect the importance of understanding this law of karma in our lives. We begin to appreciate the Buddha's words in calling it the light of the world because it illuminates how things are unfolding. Um, since it's quite late, if If you have some questions, perhaps you can come up and ask them. Otherwise, you can walk. One one announcement. Actually, it's it's a good karmic announcement. Um, Please be respectful of the different staff spaces in the building. They all are working very hard, and it's important that the staff has mm, a quiet space for themselves. And as the retreat goes on, sometimes uh, people get less careful with that. And so I've been requested to remind you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.